If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First uh, Timothy tonight, First Timothy chapter one. Get started here tonight in First Timothy, and uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get into our study. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to be here and to sing your praises tonight, and uh, to study your word. Pray that you would bless our time in the word tonight, and a time in prayer as well. Uh, just pray for everything to go well with Grand Prix tonight, youth group as well. Ask your blessing on all of our meetings. Help us to be a good testimony for you, especially with interacting with perhaps uh, those that are unbelievers even uh, with us uh, this evening in various uh, uh, ways here. So, Lord, again, we commit our evening to you and ask your blessing on it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, if I was to ask you what was Paul's mission, what would you say? <coughs> Spread the gospel. I want to add a little something more to that. That's true. To what end? That's true. He walks into a community. He's sharing the gospel. What's his goal here? Plant churches. Paul wanted to see churches planted. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That was a major goal. We're coming into town to put the silversmiths out of work here. That's right. Uh, indirectly, yes, that's true. But uh, I want to emphasize a little, the reason I'm emphasizing he came to town to plant churches is because we are in the pastoral epistles, uh, First and Second Timothy and then Titus, the three epistles we call the church, uh, church epistles, uh, the pastoral epistles, uh, with, with an emphasis on the church. And uh, as, you, as you think about this, um, the emphasis here is church order. That's the theme of, of 1 Timothy here. And uh, you might wonder why I got this map up here, and uh, I'll tell you why. You expected me to say that, right? You did figure I was going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> Achaia. It's interesting. Uh, in Paul's uh, communication, this, this Roman province of Achaia, Athens is here and Corinth is here. They're both in Achaia. Now, on his third missionary journey, where did Paul go first? Did he go to Corinth and then on to Athens, or did he come from Athens to Corinth? He went from Athens to Corinth. That's correct. So we read about him as he is in Acts chapter 17. He's on what we call Mars Hill in Athens, and he's communicating with these philosophers and uh, did anybody believe in Athens? A few. A few did. But what happened at Corinth? A church was planted. Not at Athens, but at Corinth. So, uh, note uh, what we've already said here. In Acts 17, some men joined him, believed. And then he mentions and then a woman. And others with him. So there's a few. There was a few that did join in. But it says in 1 Corinthians 16, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Again, he came to Athens before he came to Corinth, and yet he says the first fruits were of the whole household of Stephanus, which is at Corinth. Well, if that's true, uh, like I say, 
he went to Athens first, a few believe, but then he went to Corinth, and he says the first fruits are of Corinth. Why would he say that? Well, I think in Paul's theology, he's here to plant churches. And when he thinks about an enduring, lasting work, he's thinking about the church that was planted at Corinth. The first fruits of that effort, where we're going to plant churches, was at Corinth. And it's interesting because he says here in 1 Corinthians 9, 2, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am of you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Wow. You look at his ministry and say, where's the proof of him being an apostle? He says, it's at Corinth. Remember what happened at Corinth? He was trying to reason with those philosophers and, you know, he's quoting their poets and everything else. He comes to Corinth. What kind of an attitude does he come into Corinth with? I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Timothy, or 1 Corinthians 2. And so um, this enters into my theology and my thinking that Paul is really big on planting churches. And if a church wasn't planted there, you know, that's not really quite the goal we want. Now, praise the Lord, for I'm sure he would agree with this. Every soul matters. Every soul that's saved is... is but a lasting work of a local church, that's really what, what he was after. And that's why I think he saw the first fruits uh, being at Corinth instead of Athens. Both were in the Roman region, uh, uh, the Roman province of, of Achaia. Well, the theme here of First uh, Timothy, as I say, is church order. And the uh, key verse is in First Timothy 3.15. Uh, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. By the way, the house of God, was he talking about uh, some property and a building they had acquired? No. <laughs> no, he wasn't. What is the house of God? Which is? Ecclesia means what? Called out assembly. Right, right, right. Uh, it's the people. We are, we are the temple of God. We are the household of God. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the building we're in here. It's where the, the house meets in this house. But we ourselves are the church of, of God, the household of God. And so he's writing so they'll know how to behave themselves. That's why we call it about, uh, we talk about uh, church order uh, being the emphasis of, of the book here. Uh, let's see here. Just a few other things uh, to note here as far as the background here. Uh, Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, uh, the author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. We think it was written somewhere around uh, AD 64. Again, church orders the theme. Key verse, 1 Timothy 3.15. Purpose to exhort and instruct Timothy in his leadership responsibilities, to refute false teachings, and to reiterate principles of church order. So that's, uh, that's the purpose and, and the background here as far as what we're looking at here tonight. As far as the outline here. Uh, we have a greeting, which we will look at tonight, and then he gets into this long section, commands to Timothy regarding doctrine and practice. I mean, right out of the gates after the greeting, we're into this, and we'll begin it tonight with just a couple of verses, but then instructions regarding church order, regarding sound doctrine, exemplary walk, instructions regarding the work in the church, and the final charge to Timothy. So again, uh, this is about how the church is to now behave itself, how it should conduct itself as uh, the household of God. Um, 
Okay, timeline here. Let's talk about timeline. Uh, approximate timeline of uh, Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, first journey, 48 to 50, a couple years in Galatia, Acts 13 and 14. Second missionary journey, 50 to 52, three years, Macedonia, Achaia, Greece. Uh, third missionary journey, 53 to 56, approximately, in, in Asia largely, uh, Acts 18 to 21. And then he's processed through the Roman courts, 56 to 60, under house arrest, uh, 61, 62. We think he was released and travels on a fourth missionary journey from about 63 to 66. It's in this context of the fourth missionary journey that we think he wrote 1 Timothy, about 64 A.D. Of course, then he was again in prison in Rome, where he was executed probably about A.D. 67. So I'll give you just a, a, a rough overview in terms of what we're talking about as far as um, his ministry and where we're at in that ministry. We're coming towards the, the end of it, and he is writing uh, Timothy, who has been stationed at Ephesus here. Um, he, uh, note uh, where we're talking about here as far as Ephesus. Uh, we're over here uh, in this area. What we've been talking about, Achaia, we were talking about that. But now we're talking about Ephesus here. He's gone up into Macedonia, and uh, Timothy is down here at Ephesus. And so uh, he is saying, you stay here. Don't come up here with me. You stay here at Ephesus. I need you there. And uh, we'll talk about that as we get into our study. Um, okay. Anything else before we get started here? That's enough introduction here. Let's get going. Let's have somebody read verses 1 and 2. Who wants to read that for us? First uh, Timothy chapter 1. Yes, Dave. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You know, Paul did write to uh, those at Corinth and say, you're, you're living epistles. So, you know, I mean, he was kind of an epistle too. But anyway, I'll be funny a little bit. Uh, okay, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right out of the gate. Paul, an apostle. Uh, now, when we think about Paul, it, he had two names, right? Yes, Paul and Saul. Uh, and... Uh, in terms of this name, Paul, uh, of course, uh, Saul is a Jewish name. Paul is a Gentile name. Uh, Saul uh, means asked for, um, where Paul means small or little, uh, which is kind of interesting. You really probably would not think of most Jewish families naming their son, calling their son a Gentile name that means little. <laughs> Think about this. Uh, Jews and, and their attitude towards Gentiles. We're going to give them a Gentile name with means little. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. But some, uh, you know, the question is, when did he acquire the name Paul? Uh, was it at birth? Was he given a Gentile name as well as a Jewish name? Well, some think so. You know, one of my teachers was uh, Harold Berry, which I have great respect for Harold. And uh, Harold says this. I, I talked about, you know, after he, you know, assumed the name Paul after his conversion, which is not used before that. But uh, he says here, you indicate after Saul's conversion he was called Paul. I assume in a multilingual society he had both names from birth. 
Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman or Greek name. But when God sent him to the Gentiles, he used his Greek or Gentile name. At those times, Jesus had the Hebrew name Yeshua and the Greek name Jesus. I see that as common in those days. And he makes a good argument. It might be. I, I wouldn't necessarily refute that. Like I was telling you, I'm just a little bit of Jewish prejudice. It's kind of hard to see the name of that kid, a Gentile name that means little, but maybe, maybe. Uh, there are other views. Uh, yeah? Uh, both names, they don't mean the same thing. No, they don't. That's a great point. That's a good point. The parallel breaks down there. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of saying about even in terms of Jewish background, even the Jewish prejudice. Would you name your son a name that means little and it's a Gentile name that means little? Uh, it's just kind of hard for me to buy that entirely. I have leaned more towards this, what I have up on the screen now. Others think it more probable that uh, Paul assumed the name Paul on his first missionary journey as seen in Acts 13. At the beginning of his first missionary journey, Paul's first convert was a man by the name of Sergius uh, Paulus. It is summarized that Paul from then on assumed uh, the name Paul, which uh, reflected the reality of his apostolic authority demonstrated in the conjunction with his first Gentile convert named Paulus. We don't know that for sure. Yes, John. Yes, it would. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the name Paul, though. Yeah. Paul, not Saul. No, no, Paul. No, Saul, Saul means ask for. Yeah, P Paul means little or small. Yes, Paul. Yeah, so it makes sense that they would call him Saul. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Paul? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, I think Paul fits well with him being humbled. Uh, Paul saw himself in a very humble light. After that, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called, you know, all of these things. So, so his attitude was, was you know, humbled. Uh, I think he had a smaller view of himself ever after his conversion. It's interesting to me, we never have this used in reference before his conversion. And really, we don't have it used until after he starts on his missionary journey, which would maybe argue for Harold's view in the sense that, well, now he's out in the Gentile context. As the apostle of the Gentiles, he's using his Gentile name. Again, we don't know for sure. These are kind of speculative things here a little bit. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. I kind of I like that, too. And, I mean, Saul was the tallest guy in the land. He was the big guy, you know. I mean, Saul is kind of synonymous with a, a really large person. Paul's the opposite. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I don't want to get too hung up on this because we don't really know for sure. But uh, I kind of tend to disagree just a little bit in my own personal thinking there with, with Harold. Although, Harold might be right. Yeah, he could be. Anyway, uh, Paul and Apostle, uh, right away, 
Paul an apostle. Uh, apostle means sent one. It's used in a technical sense in the New Testament. It's also used in a non-technical sense. Uh, sent one in a general sense, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, I believe it is. Uh, it's used there in terms of uh, uh, people sent out by the churches. Kind of like a missionary would be a sent one today. Might say, well, or, uh, a sent one, uh, an apostle in a, a general, non-technical sense. But Paul here is using it in a technical sense. And uh, when we think about apostles, uh, the New Testament is pretty clear. Uh, if you can read this with me up here. Uh, apostles of Christ, they were personally chosen by Jesus. You didn't wake up one morning and say, I- I've decided I'm going to be an apostle. No, no. Uh, you were personally chosen by Christ. Uh, and then secondly, they were personally taught the gospel by Jesus. Uh, were personal witnesses of Christ's resurrection, performed special sign miracles unique to them, uh, the signs of an apostle, Paul talks about, uh, provided the revelatory foundation for the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Uh, and uh, they spoke with authority for Jesus Christ. And they have an eternal place of special honor. This is really what it means to be an apostle of Christ. Now, almost from the very beginning, there were people who wanted to step forward and say, I'm an apostle, because it carried weight. It carried the idea of, I have authority. I speak with authority for the Lord in the technical sense. And so they kind of liked that position. Uh, Here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Christ is commending the church at Ephesus, which is interesting in light of where we're at in our study, because uh, here is the place where uh, Timothy was stationed. I know your works, labor, patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You're not putting up with it. I mean, (laughs) there was uh, evidently some effectiveness in in Timothy's ministry as he went along here. Uh, uh, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So they're they're putting to the test that there are people on the scene, even then in those early days, I'm an apostle. We're going to put you to the test. And we're we're finding you to be a liar, brother. Uh, So-called brother. (laughs) You're a liar. And Jesus is commending this church. He's commending the church at Ephesus. That's who we have in view here. Uh, He's commending them uh, for uh, testing them and finding them to be liars. And then as we go to the end of the book, we get into Revelation 21 and 22. The context there is the eternal state, new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city where we're going to live, that that golden city. And what do we find there? Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, not 43, not 173, 12. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Only 12. Uh, I think, uh, personally, Judas was replaced by Paul. Others have other ideas. Matthias, you can argue this. But uh, clearly, uh, Jesus chose Paul. I'm not so sure he chose Matthias. Uh, The other group did. (laughs) The group did. But anyway, again, just me. We get into these things a little bit. There's debate there. Um, But my point here, only 12. Twelve foundations, in them the names of the twelve apostles. Only twelve. You can argue about which are the twelve, but only twelve. And uh, so these people come along to, you know, we have this uh, uh, new apostolic reformation. 
These guys claim to be apostles. I mean, let's revisit Revelation 2 and verse 2. And we find you to be liars. You are not telling the truth. And John has some really serious things to say about liars, right? Where's their destination? Well, lake of fire. I mean, it's a really big deal to claim you're an apostle. It's really a serious, serious issue. As we see, even, even in the early days of the church, uh, even at the end of the apostolic age, as we see in the book of Revelation. But Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus means uh, Savior. Literally, Yahweh is salvation. Uh, God's Savior is really the combination there. Uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, Christ means anointed one, the special chosen one, uh, as we find uh, would come uh, as prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Again, not a self-made apostle. He's there by the commandment of God and Jesus. Uh, so uh, he's under divine orders. It was a divine mandate that he be an apostle. And, uh, you know, he got this, you know, as we think about this, uh, again, not a self-made man. And, and you think about the, the church. Jesus Christ is in charge of the church. God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Uh, whatever you if you have a position in the church, uh, it's Jesus Christ who puts you there. It's God who sets you in that position. There's no self-made people here. And, and I think when people try to do that, say, I'm going to make myself, uh, just like in the corporate America, I'm going to climb to the top here. Watch out. That's a problem. Uh, Paul was uh, put there. And, you know, I think it was, it was pretty abrupt right from the beginning. Jesus knew what he was going to do with him, Right? And he's sharing his testimony here in Acts 26. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. A few verses later, he says to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You know, I don't think, uh, you know, he didn't say, uh, who are you, Lord? I'm available <laughs> to be an apostle. <laughs> no way. Jesus had this in mind for him from the very beginning. And he says he wasn't disobedient. He did what the Lord wanted him to do. He's there by the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, it's interesting. When we think about our Savior, normally this is used in reference to Jesus Christ. But here it's referencing God, God the Father. And, uh, of course, the triune Godhead, they're all involved in our salvation, right? In a sense, <laughs> they're all involved in, in saving us in, in one aspect or another. But, uh, you know, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, he sent his son on a saving mission. So, um, certainly, God is the source. Uh, he's the ultimate source behind it. Jesus is the means, and they are linked here. Uh, you know, they have different roles, but... Uh, here it says, God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Again, Lord means Master, Jesus, Savior, Christ, the Chosen One. And he says, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. In the New Testament, hope is the idea of a certain expectation of what God has promised will be fulfilled. And so that's the idea here. What is the basis of our hope? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God is going to fulfill 
what has been promised to us through the person of Jesus Christ, who is our glorious Savior, uh, who fulfills what God has ordained for us. And notice uh, this word, our. Uh, the Christian faith has been called the, uh, the faith of personal pronouns, right? Our Savior, our hope, God our Savior, uh, Christ our hope. Uh, this is for us as believers. This is, this is uh, what belongs to us. Okay, uh, any input here? Did I look, overlook somebody here earlier? Okay. All right, verse 2. To Timothy, so it's from the Apostle Paul, uh, to Timothy, uh, a true son in the faith. Now, you know what's interesting? Uh, Paul had consistently a ministry team, right? He was never a lone ranger. He's working with somebody. And Timothy is one of these people who is very close to him as far as working hand in hand with him. And uh, so Timothy is an interesting guy. Uh, Timothy uh, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And uh, he had a godly mother and a godly grandmother. Mother's name was Eunice. That was my mom's name, by the way. And uh, had a grandmother by the name of Lois. And what did they do with Timothy? Uh, when he, They were bringing him up uh, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. I mean, they were teaching him the Scriptures even from uh, being a little boy. Uh, so, um, that's the background uh, to Timothy. Now, um, when Paul ran into him on his second missionary journey, did he, did he lead him to the Lord? Or was, you know, when did Timothy get saved? That's the question. Because Paul says to here, a true son in the faith. Uh, what does Paul mean by this? Uh, does this? Is this an indication that Paul led him to the Lord? He's, he's my son in the faith in the sense that he's my convert. I led him to the Lord. Is that what he's meaning? Or is he meaning he's like a son to me? I'm an older gentleman. Uh, I have discipled him. I have taught him. He's like a son to me. Which one is it? Well, that's true. She said it could be both. Okay. <laughs> well, that is certainly true. No matter what, that is true. Uh, we don't know whether he really led him to the Lord or not. It could be both, just like Anita said. But certainly he was like a son to him. They had a big impact. That's true, but it doesn't really tell us exactly when the time of conversion was. So that's the... Yeah, 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 which is, which is fine. I'm just saying we don't know for sure. Yes. Those two. Yeah, Timothy and Titus are addressed as, as my son. Yeah. So uh, did he lead both of them to the Lord or were they like a Sunday? You know, we can get into that debate all day. But yeah, Anita? Yeah, I, I'm not, yeah, I don't know how, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's, we're, we're going to have to leave that out here in, in the unknown. Yes, Caleb.
Oh, there's no question. I think there's no doubt about that. Yeah. So, yeah, as far as, yes, Michelle. Yeah, you know, we're looking at uh, a couple of verses, but 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So, but when, I mean, at some point they were all in transition here, right? We're early in the church age. Uh, Christ has been crucified and is risen from the dead, and now we have the beginning of the church. At some point, they're crossing over from a belief in the God of Israel to say, oh, this is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Messiah. All, ultimately, they made that connection. Exactly when? I'm not sure. Yeah, but yeah, they they're ultimately connected those, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to, oh, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And our faith is to be in him. Yeah. Okay, well, very good. Good, good discussion there. Um, notice he says a true son in the faith. Th- this is key. You know, uh, he's not illegitimate. He's the real deal. He's, he's a true son in the faith. Um, let's see here. 1 Corinthians 4.17. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. There again. Uh, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Uh, so that's interesting. You know, he was certainly at the very least, he was like a son to Paul and, and mirrored his ways, uh, you know, just like a father would teach a, a son. Uh, that is certainly true. And again, in Philippians chapter 2, in context, we're talking about Timothy, but you know his proven character that as a son with his father. Now, this might argue for, you know, it's not actually necessarily a convert, but as a, uh, as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Anyway, go round and round and round here. Okay, uh, notice uh, as he goes on here, then he gives the greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the faith versus just faith. Yeah. Right, right. Well, to, you know, be in the faith, you're going to have faith, right? Yeah. So, uh, but that's a good question. I'm not sure if the definite article's there or not. Um, I don't remember. That's a good question. Maybe uh, I've got it on my phone. I maybe could look it up later here. But you can maybe find it too, but yeah. It's a good question. Uh, certainly, you know, he's talking about uh, the faith that we share, the common faith uh, as believers that we all share in. You know, uh, he's uh, a true son in, in that faith. He's a true believer, in other words. So, yeah, I'm not sure. One, one kind of relates to the other. But good question. Uh, When you find that, let me know, Vince. I am curious now. Okay. Uh, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor. And by the way, in the greetings, a lot of times Paul just says grace and peace. But here he's got mercy as well. And uh, it's interesting. Grace always leads, right? It's always in the first position, grace. Uh, Everything flows out of grace. 
which is uh, God's unmerited favor. And then mercy. Uh, what is mercy? Yeah, it's, it, that's true. Well, as for all of us, but amen. Mercy is the idea of having compassion on someone in misery, even, even though they don't deserve it. It's kind of self-inflicted, but I have mercy on them. <laughs> I have compassion. I have concern for them in their misery. And so it, it's that idea of uh, pity or uh, uh, withholding punishment that is due. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace. Peace, uh, you know, we talk about shalom in the Old Testament, Aranea, peace, the Greek word. And uh, it's the idea of uh, things are aligned right. Things are in harmony. Everything is, is right. Uh, spiritual well-being. And, and this is uh, all from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God has brought us into a relationship with him where, where everything is, is well. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, any other thoughts there? Okay, let's have somebody read verses 3 and 4 to, to finish us out here tonight. Yeah, Jeff? Okay, thank you. Notice he says, uh, you know, he's talking about, uh, he starts out, I'm an apostle, and then he's addressing Timothy and affirming him, a true son in the faith, and then uh, grace, mercy, and peace from, from God. And then he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I urged you. It's almost like the sense like, like Timothy kind of would like to move on. <laughs> I don't know that Ephesus was an easy place to be. Uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I think, you know, he really probably would have liked to have gone into Macedonia with Paul. I'll go with you. I, I, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> I'd like to be available. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting, though, that I urge you, which is the idea of to entreat to implore, pretty strong. Um, and, you know, Timothy did need a little encouragement, it would seem here. Uh, in 2 Timothy, he writes and he says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? It was not easy here. This is not an easy pastorate. And uh, he, he's urging him. I, I, I'm, I'm, when I went into Macedonia, uh, I, I urged you to remain in Ephesus. Now, again, we think this uh, probably relates to the fourth missionary journey. Uh, he's up here going into Macedonia, and here he's saying, you stay at Ephesus. He's going up here to Macedonia. You stay here. There's, there's unfinished business that, that I need you there. And, you know, he had quite an investment here. Uh, he spent three years at Ephesus, longer than any other place that Paul stayed uh, in his missionary journeys. So... Um, I don't know why he had to urge him, but almost a sense like he needed some encouragement to stay there. Yeah.
Yeah. And, and I think uh, Timothy was an easygoing guy, too. He tended to be. It doesn't seem like he was the strong leader like Paul was. He's more, a little more easygoing. Needed a little encouragement. And he, was young. and he was young. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. So uh, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, uh, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. I think here, here's kind of a hard part. Maybe for young Timothy, maybe tend to be a little more reserved. Uh, he says, uh, you know, th- that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. I mean, Paul is laying it out pretty strong here. If you start charging people, what, what does it mean to charge people? Command them. Yeah, this is a demand. This is a command. Uh, this is not, um, you know, a suggestion. This isn't like, well, be very tactful. No, no. This is be pretty forceful. Uh, charge some. Uh, and again, it seems that there's an issue uh, with some false teachers on the scene. That's where he goes as we go on further here. But, um, you know, there's a place. You have to be kind of tough with false teachers. We want to be very gentle. We want to be gracious with people. And we want to be, we want to be Christ-like with everybody. But I tell you, when it comes to false teachers, you've got to be very tough. What does what it say to Titus? The, one of the other pastoral epistles. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. He's talking about, you know, uh, leaders, elders, that he may be able by sound doctrine uh, to exhort, convict those who contradict. Got to be able to take on these false teachers. Refute them. In a strong way, he goes on to say, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers. And there's many of them. Especially of the circum Jews. Jewish background, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Uh, They're in it for what they can get out of it. And their mouths must be stopped. They're teaching wrong. They got a prosperity gospel, their prosperity, and, you know, taking advantage of God's people. And he says they must be stopped. And so there is a place for some forcefulness here. And uh, with these false teachers, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Here's the concern. They're out of line when it comes to apostolic doctrine, New Testament doctrine. And we don't have to wonder about this. There's a consistent emphasis here in 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul's the apostle. The sound words which you heard from me. Hold, hold fast. And then in chapter 2, the things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach other. There's no question in terms of when he says um, that they teach no other doctrine, clearly he's talking about apostolic doctrine. I mean, Paul was teaching Timothy, and Timothy was now to pass that on to others. And he's insisting that uh, they don't teach anything else. You stick strictly with apostolic doctrine here. Uh, it's always interesting. People have this tendency to want to get into other things. Novel ideas are kind of exciting. They're kind of interesting. And uh, he says, don't, don't go there. Now, many think when he says charge some that they teach no other doctrine, that he's really talking about elders in the church. And that always gets really hairy, right? I mean, when you've got to start confronting fellow elders, and, and of course, uh, Timothy has a kind of a unique role, kind of a, a, a lead pastoral role on the scene, but there were other elders there. And uh, we know when Paul left, uh, the last time he met with these guys in Acts chapter 20, 
He says, and from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. This is the elders at Ephesus that he is addressing there in Acts chapter 20. Yeah. I, I think he is reiterating, here's what is required to be an elder. And I think he's laying that down because there's a concern with some on the scene that are not meeting the qualifications. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you get to chapter 5, he is giving explicit how you remove an elder and to rebuke them before everybody. So I think the consensus is that there were probably already elders on the scene here already. But there needs to be some shoring up. Uh, they need to meet the qualifications, like you're talking about in chapter 3. And he's going to reiterate that and say, hey, if somebody's going to be an elder, he's got to meet all these qualifications. I don't think at this point he's saying, there is none. I take it they probably were. Uh, and there's several reasons to think this. Uh, for one thing, in, in Paul's teaching, as he says in chapter 3, the teachers are the elders. And so if they are teaching, they're probably in a leading role. And so some are teaching what is wrong, and they're abusing that position. And so I think, again, that relates to why he's reiterating, here are the qualifications. If you don't meet that qualification, you can't be in that position. Uh, there's a number of things. Uh, yeah, his emphasis on elder qualifications, uh, the need to rebuke sinning elders, as he brings out in chapter 5. Uh, but again, this would be a daunting task, I think, for young Timothy, who is perhaps a little uh, timid or a little reserved by nature, uh, kind of easygoing. And uh, so he's, he's kind of needing to be encouraged, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Makes sense to me. He's probably dealing with people that were kind of put in that forward position as teachers. And he's now having to deal with that. Yeah. Amen. And I think that's exactly why Paul starts where he starts and the emphasis he makes there because of that very reason. Uh, Timothy's going to have this letter and that's going to bolster him in the battle here. Yeah. Amen. That's, that's a huge, huge thing here. And uh, then he says uh, here, and uh, give, uh, nor give heed to fables and gene endless genealogies. Don't give them any credibility, uh, these fables, which is the idea of myths. Uh, probably uh, Jewish in orientation. He talks about old wives' fables in chapter 4. In Titus, he talks about Jewish fables. Uh, and endless genealogies. Uh, the Jews were very involved with genealogies and allegorizing genealogies. And so there seems to maybe be a, a, a Jewish flavor here of, of one kind or another. Uh, Nelson's study Bible. Whoops. Okay. We can look at that for a minute, but then we have to press on. <laughs> the errors that Paul left Timothy to correct in Ephesus appear to have been primary Jewish in nature, involving unrestrained speculation about genealogies and allegorical interpretations of the law, like those found in rabbinical literature. Uh, t uh, the commentaries tend to have a pretty general consensus that this is kind of Jewish uh, in flavor in terms of the concerns here. And then he says, which caused disputes... 
you get into these speculative things, you can argue all day, right? I see it that maybe this, maybe that. Maybe the, the 318 servants of Abraham mean this. Maybe it means whatever. There's no end to that. And uh, so he says they cause disputes rather than godly edification, which, which is in faith. It's interesting, this word edification here. Let me kind of uh, take a moment to deal with this. Uh, the Greek word uh, translated edification more literally is dispensation. So a very literal reading is the dispensation of, of God, which is in faith. Uh, so it's translated here, uh, godly edification, which is in faith, but literally uh, the dispensation of God, which is in faith. The word dispensation means administration, management, or stewardship. Dispensation is, a, is defined as an arrangement of things, a scheme, uh, King James Dictionary. Um, what kind of administration are we currently under in this church age? We are not under an administration of law like they were in the Old Testament. Uh, we are not under a system of Jewish legalism given to fables and allegory. Uh, no, we are under a system of grace. Uh, law was given by Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, uh, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe uh, is me if I do not preach the gospel. If, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. I guess, same word, dispensation. And then in Ephesians 3, 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. So we see that, that emphasis uh, consistently throughout. And finally, whatever the form of legalism, it's not compatible with God's administration of grace. Grace and faith go together. Faith is based on the clear, certain gospel teaching of the apostles. Legalistic speculations are completely contrary to God's grace. And that is the point here. I really think there's, there's a form of legalism that's come in uh, with these myths and these allegories. And it's, uh, notice he says there as you get into um, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. So he's dealing with people that are, again, emphasizing the law, probably bringing in some Jewish uh, legalism into the mix here with these fables and endless genealogies. Well, the opening charge here is that he command that nothing be taught that contradicts the gospel of grace. And that's a hill to die on, uh, the gospel of grace. Um, finally, one more slide here. Uh, you got works, right, of some form. Uh, really, all the religions of the world, cults and false religions, uh, they all have some form of works tied in. Christianity is about grace. We have a gospel of grace. And that's what builds faith. Uh, notice how he says this, uh, godly dispensation, which is in faith. Uh, the dispensation of grace. This is what we are to emphasize according to apostolic teaching, not going back to legalistic law teaching that these false teachers were doing. For us, it's all about the gospel of God's grace. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, there are Druze in the land of Israel yet. It's, uh, you know, uh, well, it's, it's actually a, a people with a religion of sorts. And uh, it's a, a mixture of uh, Jewish thinking with uh, almost like Samaritan type thinking. 
Um, but anyway, I, as far as all the specifics on that, I don't know. We could look it up. But yeah. Remember, Vince, when we were in, in Israel, the, the, the Druze? Yeah. yeah. So it'd be interesting to look up and see what their specifics are. Anyway, all kinds of stuff here. Point is, they all tie, they all get grace wrong. So, all right. Any other thoughts before we wrap up here? Okay, very good. Good discussion. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, I think like Catholicism, you know, which is not true Christianity. Yes, that, that is kind of the acid test here. So absolutely. I mean, you, the largest sec, sector of Christendom is really not teaching the true gospel of grace. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. All right. Anything else? Did you find the definite article? It's not there. Okay, which would be almost more like a personal faith. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that either. I'm just talking off the top of my head. I mean, the faith. You're talking about a definite body of faith. Yeah. I don't know either. In some contexts, it wouldn't. So yeah, yeah. So I don't know either. Okay. Well, let's share some uh, prayer requests here.